0: The prospect of the coffee machine catching fire (laughs) has done that for me this morning i'm still recovering we probably should take a moment in advance just to play pray protection on it precious gift that it is it's a taonga that's what it is it's a taonga well just down the road from here i think that way is one of the most iconic and famous places in New Zealand. In latter times it was known as Jade Stadium or AMI Stadium, but for people of my vintage and older it was always Lancaster Park. Here is a picture of it pre-2011. I went there just before the quake season to see Brendan McCullum repeatedly smashing the fastest bowlers I'd ever seen over his head. And it was sort of like this. So the ball's coming at you at 150 k's an hour, plus you bend down and you go bang over your head. Couldn't believe it. Never forget it. Earlier, Nathan Astle scored 222 in a test match against England. That was a sight to behold. He still holds the world record for the fastest 200 in test history. There it is now, post-quake, it's back to being a field. As a young man in Auckland in 1985, I avidly watched my team on TV take the Ranfley Shield off an extraordinary Canterbury team, Phil, in a truly extraordinary game. Canterbury was down by more than 20 points at half-time and apparently their coach, the the famous Grizz Wileys team talk, went like this. Well, if they can score 25 points in 40 minutes, so can you. Which translates to, if they can score 25 points in 40 minutes, then so can you. And blow me down, they did. And they only just lost. Epic game. Going back even further, it was the place that Billy Graham preached from in 1959, which was the last time a mass evangelism event had a measurable impact on the New Zealand church and we have Isabel Snow here as, as a tribute who came from the Auckland um, rally. Other people here have significant times at Billy Graham? Yep. That field is a storied place, especially if you are a cricket tragic, a rugby head, or first brought to faith there. I also recall a couple of comedians. Oops, no, don't want that one just yet. A couple of comedians who stood at the gate one Crusaders game day with placards which read "Richie McCaw's a cheat." Now, the, for those of you who are not plugged into our national obsession, McCaw was a defining and dominating player of his generation, and Lancaster Park was his domain. It was where he was king. Now the abuse, and they they got the camera off and just sort of recorded what happened. The abuse that those comedians coped was something to behold as they just nodded and smiled when their parentage was loudly and angrily questioned by the punters walking by. They knew what they were doing. On holy ground, they were blowing a raspberry at much of what the Canterbury faithful hold dear. I watched it waiting for someone to punch them but we who live here are far too gracious for that kind of thing, aren't we? Well, today's text takes place at another very storied place, the temple in Jerusalem. You are wondering how I was going to get there, weren't you? And it goes like this.
1: One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at that hour of prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon and a man, lame from birth, was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate, so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, Look at us and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All, of, all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognised him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him.
0: You didn't know that God spoke with a woman's voice, did you? <laughs> we are a young country with Polynesian settlement here since perhaps 1350, and Pakeha just over the last 200 years. By contrast, the Jerusalem temple story is over 3,000 years old. In something like 1250 BC, Moses led the enslaved people of God out of Egypt into the Sinai Desert. God led them by a fiery cloud at night and they worshipped in the tent of meeting which contained the Ark of the Covenant and the Ten Commandments which God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. Sacred things. Now skipping forward a couple of hundred years, King Solomon built a temple to house these precious relics to be a permanent place for the worship of God in Jerusalem. To be God's house. They used to say this was where heaven and earth met. In five eighty six BC, the first temple was destroyed by the conquering Babylonians, and God, use, who God used to judge His idolatrous people, the Ark and the of the covenant and the Ten Commandments then disappeared from recorded history, they haven't been seen since. And the leading citizens, the great and the good, were marched off into captivity. Again. But later, a new temple was rebuilt by Nehemiah after the exiles were allowed to return. And Herod, uh, just before Jesus' time, did a bit of um, extending and shaping as well. Within that temple was a little room called the Holy of Holies, in which once a year, the high priest entered and offered a sacrifice for himself and for the sins of the people called the Day of Atonement. The temple, the complex, was the focus of spiritual life of the whole nation. The high priest was the national leader of the Jewish people, a, a theocratic leader is the technical term, a little bit like Ayatollah Ali Khomeini is the national leader of Iran today. Now this is the Reader's Digest story of the temple up to AD 30 later it's destroyed by the romans and a mosque and the dome of the rock was built on the site 700 years later by the muslims who consider it their holy and storied site only one wall of that second temple remains that big wall on the right there it's known as the western wall or the Wailing wall where the faithful jews come to pray to this day I'm going to come back to that point of the story. Now back in Peter's time in Acts, prayers offered in the temple court were thought to be more effective than prayers offered elsewhere because it's sort of closer to where God was living. So maybe he might hear you. And the beggar in Acts 3 had had himself positioned probably because he thought, well, people on their way to do their spiritual duty are probably going to be kinder to me than if I was somewhere else. Devotion to God should lead to care for people, shouldn't it? Now he doesn't get alms, which is um, like a donation from Peter and John, but he receives quite a profound miracle. Think about it. Not only is the source of his lameness healed, let's say he's got a bung ankle or something from birth, but he's never walked. So he's going to have no muscle mass in his legs. He gets that. And because he's never walked and had muscle mass, he's got no coordination, doesn't know how to walk. Think of the rehab that would happen today if that happened to you. And all of that is fixed. The miracle that he has given is really a life, a real life, like he's never known before. He's got this complete healing. Understandably, he is elated. The story continues.
1: While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's Portico, utterly astonished. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people, You Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power Or piety we had made him walk the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob the God of our ancestors has glorified his servant Jesus whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate though he had decided to release him but you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and by faith in his name, his name itself has made this man strong, whom you, have, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all.
0: Now remember, this is Peter, who shortly before was afraid of his own shadow, on the night before Jesus died. No, I don't know him. Who do you mean? What, me, who? No, I'm not from Galilee. Scared of being recognized. Boldly stepping up to preach. Again. Did the first time at Pentecost. It's not prearranged. He just sees the opportunity that this healing sign has given him and he goes for it. Another thing that has changed and that is that he knows, and he's not shy about saying, is it? Neither me nor John have any special power or goodness that we're healing out of. There's no more argument about who is the greatest and who's going to get the big seats at the party. It's God, our God, people. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your ancestors, has done this marvellous thing. He's blending in with the story of the people and the place. He's sharing with Jews at their God's temple on scarily holy ground. Now today, Peter would probably be publishing books. There'd be MP3s or MP4s. He'd be on the Christian speaking network. He'd probably have his own program, maybe his whole network. This is the complete opposite of that. There's no self-promotion. And I don't say that lightly. I was reading a story about a very famous Christian preacher called Mark Driscoll. He published a book. He got the church's money. He sent some of the people out to church to various bookshops to buy it so you get the sales up, so he'd get on the New York Times bestseller list interesting marketing strategy but see here too even the faith that healing is mediated through is said in verse 16 to be a gift of God it all comes from above Peter proclaims Jesus Jesus the peasant from Nazareth that he hung out with who he says is the author of life shades of John 1 that I read to you earlier What's more, Jesus and faith in him is the source of the beggar's healing. This man that they killed, that they executed, is at the very centre of God's saving purpose. Peter continues
1: And now, friends, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. In this way God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah appointed to you, that is Jesus, who must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration, that God announced long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you from your own people a prophet like me. You must listen to whatever he tells you, and it will be that everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be utterly rooted out from the people. And all the prophets as many as have spoken from Samuel and those after him, also predicted these days. You are the descendants of the prophets and of the covenant that God gave you to your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and in your descendants all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways." So
0: here again, Peter is gathering up the stories of that community. The prophetic tradition, the, the prophecy of Moses and he's using those stories and what's happened recently to, to reframe their worldview, to show who Jesus was and what that means. Good job, Peter. He's a good preacher. Really effective evangelist. But what does it mean for us? because those aren't our stories. Well, I think we need to engage with our world, with an understanding of our stories, their stories, and the story of our place. I remember trying to share my faith with a Māori guy at university years ago, but I didn't really know his story, and I didn't take the time to ask him and to listen to it. Wish I had. Needless to say, it was quite a short conversation. The gospel that was preached to me in the mid-80s was a very cross-crucifixion-centered gospel. God the Father had sacrificed his son Jesus so that I would be saved from hell and damnation. The penalty, as we sung before, was paid on my behalf by Jesus on the cross this sort of approach looked back to what I was and what other people were saved from. Wasn't too sure about saving in the present tense and mentioned saving in the future in only the vaguest of terms. The focus on guilt and forgiveness meshed in well with this emphasis on the rules. Do this, but don't do that. Looking back, it was quite moralistic. Lots and lots and lots of shoulds. Well, I see several problems of a gospel like that for today's middle-class Kiwis. First, you're going to have to convince them that they are in fact sinful and should feel guilty before this gospel is going to sound like good news to them. Good luck with that. Second... It portrays God the Father like a moralistic and vengeful child abuser who sacrifices their kid. Who sacrifices their kid? Thirdly, there is the problem of our accumulated baggage as a church. Got an example, a mate of mine is an Anglican priest and he, and he wears the, you know, the dog collar thing. He's wandering through Mighty 10 a while back, with his dog collar on, walked past a guy who told him he was a pedo, pedophile. I'm told that there is a youth mentoring agency in Christchurch that does not want Christian men as mentors. They don't trust us. There's little point in preaching a gospel majoring on guilt and forgiveness to someone who does not feel guilty. Overseas missionaries wrestle with this all the time. An old teacher of mine was a missionary in Northern India. And he started out preaching Jesus who would save people from their sin with a polite but unengaged response from the local villagers. But things changed when he preached Jesus who had overcome Satan and his demons on the cross because those villagers lived in fear of the spirit world, curses, witch doctors and all that. Now that was good news that they could relate to. So how do we connect? A few years ago, we had Lynn Taylor who used to go here at our church camp. She'd done a thesis and it was quite profound. It was conversion stories of adults to the faith, conversions to the faith, who had not grown up in the church. And I particularly remember one young Christian woman and her father was dying of cancer and she asked her atheist bestie to pray with her and for her. The atheist bestie was a little bit nonplussed by this, but wanted to help her mate. Daughter shared and was open in her time of real need and real struggle when she did not have the answers. And she let her atheist friend help her reconnect with God in her grief and her fear. And the result at the other end was both are growing in the Christian faith. That law court penalty paid for my sins understanding of salvation is clearly scriptural, don't hear me disagreeing with it. But it's not the only show in town. Not the only way to understand Jesus' work on the cross. If I come from a shame-based culture, Which most Asian people I know do, and my four children certainly do, then the God that reconciles with me and redeems me is a powerful image. Salvation is present continuous, i.e., what God is doing in my life now with me and the hope in our ultimately being made whole. Hope's big. In this understanding the cross is not child sacrifice, it's self-sacrifice. Because Jesus, our great divine high priest, gave his life for me. That isn't abusive. Another thing I think the church is known for is thinking that we have all the answers. We don't have them and actually I don't think we need them but we do need to love those we come across and make space for. And to me, I've been learning to step out of task mode and engage with the people around me. And as I've done that, there are several councils that work out of this building that are becoming mates. Not all of them, but some of them. And we have deepening conversations developing. What does it mean for you in your space? Who on your radar could you connect with more deeply? Can I leave you with that thought? Mull on it today, this week, this year, and see who God leads you to. Amen. Musicians, could you please come up?